Thanks for listening to this sermon from the Image Church. Find out more about us and our weekly services at imagejesus.com. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, um, or you want to pull out your smartphone or your iPad, whatever, um, go to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. And it'll also be on the screen uh, behind me. And we're going to read um, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Read along with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for sending Jesus to preach peace to us who are far off. Um, There are men and women in this building right now who you have joined together into a holy temple, a holy building for you, not made with brick and mortar, but by the Spirit and by your word, the word of the only true and living God. So we come to you with many cares, with many worries and anxieties. We come to you with wounds and weariness of heart. And we also come to you with gladness and with joy and with thanksgiving. We come to you contrite and humble and confess that you are the only hope we have. So God, I ask that you would heal brokenness, that you would resolve conflict, you would restore relationships and bring unity where there is dissension. So show us your glory, because we know that your glory looks like Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. As I mentioned, this is our last week in the Gospel-Centered Life series, and I know a lot of you guys are going through the book study um, in a group together. And um, I would just encourage you, if you've missed any of the past weeks, to go online. All the sermons are up there. Um, You can hear what Pastor Matt is talking about, but as it says in Ecclesiastes, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And so I'm very honored to end this thing right here today with our topic of conflict. So um, I'm going to summarize a little bit what Pastor Matt has been trying to reiterate week in and week out, and that is this, that the life, the death, the burial the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ is the gospel. That is the gospel. And it is the very power of God for salvation, as it says in Romans 1.16. So God created the world by speaking it into existence. And now God is recreating the world by doing the same, by speaking life into dead hearts. There's a valley of dry bones. The spirit comes and puts flesh on it and they're an army. This this is a picture of God making all things new. So this gospel is good news. This is not good advice. It's not a good idea. Um, It's not even a good way to live. Okay, you'll notice the gospel is not a good way to live because you can't live it. 
It's something that you cannot do. It happened completely apart from you. Were you to never be born, the gospel would still be the gospel. Because it was what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished. It has implications for you, but what you do to it is not the gospel. It's what Jesus has done. So this is a historical fact and an objective reality. Objective reality means that um, it doesn't matter what you think or what you believe. It means that it's true, okay? Truth is not something that's, uh, truth is whatever I think truth is to be, as they say in all the college classrooms across the nation. No, truth is objective. And there is an objective standard, and that standard is the word of God. So the gospel is objectively true, it is objectively good, and the gospel is objectively beautiful. Okay? So beauty, we could say, is in the eye of the beholder. But the beholder is not you and me. The beholder is God. God gets to define what is beautiful. God gets to define what is good and what is true. So no other worldview can even compete with the Christian religion, with uh, this objective gospel. And this gospel is what God has done to reunite heaven and earth. So thousands of years ago in a garden, heaven and earth was separated when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They took, they grasped for something that was not supposed to be theirs yet. And ever since then, God has been on this mission to reconcile, to bring heaven back down. And as we said in the call to worship, heaven came down in Jesus Christ. So... If you're, uh, if you're a thinker, and I just told you that the gospel is not something that you can do, it's not, some, it's not the way you can live, what do we mean by having a series called The Gospel-Centered Life? Okay? Are we being inconsistent here? This is a natural and good question to ask. Okay? So, uh, gospel-centered. It's this buzzword, right? Matt talks about it. Gospel, gospel, gospel. You go to, yeah, I just love the gospel. I love the gospel. And a lot of times, what do you mean? What, what do you mean by that? That you're walking in the gospel. You're walking in the gospel. Okay. <laughs> what do we mean by that? Um, what we mean is that the gospel is not just this message that gets you into the door of Christianity, okay? The gospel isn't kind of like the $20 bill you slip in the bouncer's pocket, red rope comes out, and you're like, all right, I'm good. Uh, I've never done that. Jay, does that, is that, you need like $100 to get in? Okay, so, so Jesus is not this VIP card to get in, and then it's up to you to put on your dancing shoes, and I, I don't know, even know what people do in clubs, okay? So the gospel is not this thing that just gets you in. The gospel is what keeps you there. You're united with Christ. The gospel is what keeps you all the way until the resurrection, okay? So it's the very power of God. God's word is powerful, and that powerfulness does not stop at conversion. So this is really cool. Um, for, For the person who is a Christian, who has faith in Jesus, we can rightly say to them, As St. Augustine says, love God and do as you please. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more for those who have faith in Christ. So I can tell you, you Christian, you with a regenerate heart, you who have been born again, do what you want. Do what you want. You are free in Jesus to do what you want. And if you're, you're feeling kind of uncomfortable, well, what I want to do is, is sin, well, then I say, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. There is liberty in Christ. So I want to get these categories of what is the gospel and what is a gospel-centered life uh, kind of sorted in your mind. So follow me here. The gospel has implications for how you live, but how you live is not the gospel. Tracking? The gospel has implications for your life, for what you do, but your response is not the gospel, right? It's objective. So, um, will you pull up the, uh, um, 
this. Okay, so we've been looking at this like every single week. Uh, you guys probably have this tattooed in your, in your brain. But if it's your first time here, I want to still catch you up because I think this is a good um, illustration. So time over here. This is like math class on the, uh, the x-axis. And then we have conversion here at the dotted line. That's you when you become a Christian. And then what happens is when you become a Christian, you realize a little bit that, okay, I have transgressed God's commandments. I'm not a good guy. I'm a bad guy. And there's only one good guy, and that good guy is Jesus. And so I realize that God's holiness, his righteousness is way up here, and my flesh and sinfulness is here. And there's this gap, okay? Matt's just been like an alligator every week. He just, you guys just notice, he's just, you've been trying to bring it up, trying to bring it down. So, so what goes in that gap? We have this, this cross, and that cross is representative of the gospel. It's the message that not only saves you at conversion, but it's the message that you grow in in your Christian life. So this is to be contrasted with the idea that the gospel is this bridge. Okay, You, you cross the bridge. Uh, the cross is kind of like this. You, you walk over Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. And then it's kind of up to you to, okay, stop doing this, stop doing that, start doing this, start doing that. No. The gospel is this power that allows you to do that. So as, so what maturity really looks like is you growing in your awareness of sin, seeing the cross get bigger, and therefore you actually grow more aware of your righteousness in Christ. Okay? So the Holy Spirit, we know that he, he convicts people of sin. But one of the other things he does is convicts people of their righteousness. So when you're feeling shame, you think back to your baptism and you know, I was buried with Christ. I will be raised with him. There is no condemnation. So we're not just groveling thinking, okay, I'm bad, 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 bad dog, bad dog, bad Christian. Start being better. The Holy Spirit actually convicts you that you're righteous. You're free, not of your own merit, but You're free in Jesus, okay? This is the power of God working in you. We're talking about conflict this week. There's really no um, shortage of conflict in the world, right? So go on CNN, go on BBC, Al Jazeera, uh, Fox News, wherever you go. And I have no problem uh, finding news about conflict. Um, Just uh, this week... uh, President Obama, right? He said, all right, we're going to take uh, military action against ISIS or ISIL or, or whatever you want to call it. And, and then in Russia, uh, you know, we have Putin, Putin acting crazy, right? He's like, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. You guys can't you can do whatever you want. You know, Syria, Ukraine, Iraq, the Middle East. It, the, we look out there into the world and we see no shortage of conflict, right? How long has the Israeli-Palestinian crisis been going on for? Uh, like a minute, right? Like a really, really long time. So the thing is, in our own country, we have much of the same. Um, so, so, so we have political strife. We have Democrats, Republicans, uh, Libertarians, uh, whatever uh, people are called these days. And, th- and they're fighting on MSNBC. And then we have the whole Ferguson dust-up, right? So we have uh, the, the country and, and everyone's Facebook wall is just looking like, oh my goodness, uh, ah, all you guys. <laughs> Conflict. We have on-demand abortion, right? Call this number, pill comes to your house, child dies. We have cool shaming by the tolerance police on every sexual issue, right? So now we have, we're having this gender revolution and, and people are being maligned. There's conflict out there on every college campus, right? It's always the college kids who are, who are crazy. I, I was one of them. <laughs> so we say, the world is a crazy place. Don't turn on the news. Don't read the New York Times. It's time to homeschool the kids, honey. It's time to shelter them. The fundies had it right. Stay away. But the thing we realize is our our own lives, our work lives, our family lives are kind of 
Much the same, right? So you have the overbearing boss, the credit-stealing co-worker. You have theft, lying at home. We have domestic violence, marriages falling apart at the seams, children being neglected, and the family disintegrating and being sacrificed at the altar of self. Okay? So it's very naive to think out there is sin, conflict. And then you start to take inventory of your own life and you see the same seeds of hatred, of lust and of adultery in your own heart. It says in Jeremiah, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Okay, that's, that's the New Living Translation. It's got a little attitude. Who really knows how bad you are, right? You know. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Remember when Jesus says, um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. (laughs) A lot of people don't know what to do with that text, right? They think, okay. I'm a literalist. I better do that. But wait, I don't want to do that. And some people are like, oh, it's just a a metaphor or, or it's an allegory or it's not to be taken literally. Well, I think what Jesus is actually saying there is your eye has actually never caused you to sin. Your hand has never caused you to sin. Jesus says very clearly, it's the heart that causes you to sin. So, so what you need is not to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. You actually need to rip out your heart. You actually need a new heart. Right? So this is, this makes sense, right? When we read Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to take out that heart of stone. I'm going to do this heart surgery and put in you a heart of flesh. Cut off your hand. You got the other one. Gouge out the eye. You got the other one. You need a new heart. Sin is not out there. It's not out in the big bad world. Sin is in the human heart. And unless you get a transplant, sin will remain. So, as much as I could talk about conflict in the world, I want to have a little bit of a a family day. Um, If you can remember uh, your father or your mother, if you had one, saying... Kids, come to the living room or come to the family room. We're going to talk. You know, in my house, it was, oh no, I was mean to my sister and she told on me again. I'm going to hear it. Aaron, you need to stop hurting your sister and hurt people that hurt her. Thanks, Dad. So I want to talk about conflict within the confines of our own household Uh, with people in this room, uh, with people right here under the sound of my voice, um, Christian conflict. So this includes children, spouses, friends, strangers, all of us who are in here today. So to the text, let us go. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. This is Paul writing to the church At Ephesus, and he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul is writing to address some Christian conflict. There are Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. And Gentiles is just shorthand for everyone else. So if you're not a Jew, you're not, if you're not in God's old covenant, you are a Gentile. You're of the nations. And so for a Jew, uh, circumcision was the sign and seal of God's covenant, right? So it's kind of the flag uh, that we have the American flag saying, I, I am an American. Circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant for them. In Romans 4.10, it says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision 
as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So if you received circumcision as a Jew, you were receiving the sign and seal of Jesus. Okay? The righteousness he had by faith. Where is that righteousness? Is that in Abraham? No. Abraham was not a righteous man by his own standard. That righteousness was Christ. So for Gentiles, being, um, being separated from God's covenant, not receiving the sign of circumcision, were therefore, as the writer says, separated from Christ. You are separated from him. We can call you an alien. We can call you a stranger to the, co- to the covenants of promise. Moreover, it's hopeless. You have no hope and you're without God in the world. It's a pretty bad place to be. And it kind of makes you wonder when you read the Old Testament, why was Israel just so disobedient? They were not without God. They had him amongst him. They were not without hope. They had the hope of Jehovah. So these Gentiles needed to be brought in to the covenant. They need to be brought in to Christ. For as Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, salvation is of the Jews. So if you are not a Christian, if you are a Gentile, and the verse stops there, you are without hope. We saw the gap, right? And you're without hope and without God in the world. But there's good news for you. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's talking to these Christian Gentiles saying, you, you way out there, you aliens, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is called grace. It does not say that the Gentiles looked from afar. They cleaned themselves up and they came Into the covenant. No. (laughs) This is not some sort of, uh, I put out my hand for God and then he grabs me. This is called salvation by grace. Do you see you in this passage? Only if you are the one being brought near. Jesus goes and he brings you near. This is called grace. This is called salvation. So, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this, um, but my friend showed it to me probably like five years ago and and it was this drama. Um, and it's a very moving drama. I would tear up every time I would watch it. And it was to this very touching song. And what it was, was there, there'd be like a woman and she'd be dancing with Jesus. Okay. I'm not going to dance, but Jesus would be like twirling her around and she's happy. She's in the garden. God's showing her creation. She's like, ah, creation, Jesus, I love you. And this is supposed to symbolize, uh, the garden of Eden, right? So they're in the garden and and she's loving it. And, And then sin happens. Okay. And I forget exactly what, what the thing is that happens, but so someone comes along and they have, um, they, they like have like, what is it? A vest. Okay. A vest. So, so, so these, these people start to come and they're like wearing all black looking like the devil's creeping in and they start to woo her and she goes, Oh, look over there. There's money. And, and, and they got money and he's like laying the money down. And she's going, oh, money, money. And then there's a friend who comes and she's like wasted and she's doing the sorority girl slide. (laughs) I'm going to hear about that one afterwards. And so her friend's hanging on her shoulder and she, she's starting to get bogged down. You're seeing, okay, this is the typical sins of money, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, okay? And so eventually, she's like all the way over here on this side of the stage. Jesus is way over there. And there's all of these black evil guys in between. And then it, it's kind of, it's very dramatic. She has a gun in her hand. And she's like shaking it. She, the, the, Satan's like right over her shoulder telling her to kill herself. And then she, she puts the gun down 
And she looks and sees Jesus, and she starts running and like trying to fight these 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 guys, and they're all stronger than her. And, and then th- this is where I- I'm sitting here going, this doesn't seem doctrinally correct because Jesus is over here, kind of like pulling 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 her, pulling her pull like like she's on some sort of rope. And he's like, oh no, there's all this sin here. And then eventually, uh, it goes on for quite a while. And you're like, okay, this girl, this little girl's not taking these five dudes. And so she's here getting beat down. And then Jesus comes in, covers her. They kill him. And then she goes free. So I have nothing against this drama. Uh, it's very touching, even. I, I promise you I've teared up watching it. But... It does not accurately explain this text. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Was it by her striving to, to get to, to break that addiction? Was it striving to, to beat these guys down, to ditch the drunken girlfriend? No. So Jesus is not pulling and you're like, I'm coming, Jesus. I'll be there. No. If this was more accurate, it would have been like this. She's over there. All these people are right here. And then Jesus kills them all. He dies. And then he rises. And then she is saved. That's the difference between a grace gospel and a false gospel that is religious. Okay? That's the difference. It's very subtle in our minds sometimes when we think about the Christian life. Right? Is the Christian life, Jesus way over there, pulling me on a rope, and me over here separated from him? The Bible knows of no such category, of no such thing. So, um, verse 14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay? this is I'm not writing this, this is God's word, it says... Jesus himself, that's the he it's referring to, is our peace. I have a friend, um, a co-worker back, back in Seattle, and she's Jewish. And um, I was over in Seattle a month or so ago, and we were talking about the, the conflict there, and she's very worried. She has friends, family in Israel who are, oh, sirens are going off again. And she, she's just like, I don't know what to do. And she, she has all these friends. And I think this conflict is probably one of the most hotly debated uh, topics of all time, right? What is a peaceful solution for Palestine and Israel, where they can both stop shooting bombs into Gaza? Okay. And What I told her is this. I said, look, I'm far from being uh, politically savvy enough to give you an assessment and a solution. But I'm a Christian. And there's something that I know. I know that there will never be peace in the Middle East until grace goes there. And I started explaining to her this concept of grace, right? That, That it's a sacrificial love. That it's forgiveness. And that that cannot be found apart from Jesus. So I told her, look, there's no hope apart from Jesus. There is literally no possibility for peace there, peace in here, and in your home, apart from Jesus. She started to, to tear up. And any time uh, a minister sees tears, you know that <laughs> that's a good thing usually, right? And she didn't become a Christian that day, but it stuck with her. A few days later, I, I saw her, her post something, and all her friends are Jewish. And she, she goes, my good friend Aaron told me that peace will not come until grace comes. She didn't name the name of Jesus. It's not popular in Jewish circles. But I think I got her a little, a little step closer, right? There's no such thing as grace 
apart from Christ. Grace does not come in this um, altruistic, abstract force. Grace comes in a person. In a person. Jesus is the only hope for the Jew, for the Gentile, for the Palestinian, and for all men. So, too often we think that conflict can be solved by our own strategies, our own clever rhetoric, as if this is just a chess game, and the right moves will, will kind of solve everything. But think about this. If you solve the problem, if you're at conflict, and you are the agent of peace, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory if you solve the problem? You do. Who does glory belong to? When Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, God gets glory. So, for your marriage, parents, with your children, for your friendships, all the good advice, all the good maneuvers, all the good ideas are really useless and futile apart from Christ. So for your wayward children, you adult children who have many unresolved issues with your parents, maybe they left you and that wound is deeper than you know, no amount of psychological compartmentalizing or uh, self-therapy is going to bring you that peace that you so want. It only comes in a person and it only comes in Christ. For you who are worried about that financial situation. You've been looking for a job for a long time. Let me just remind you that a job a raise to raise your standard of living is not going to bring you peace. We think it does. That's why we go so hard for it, right? That's why we hold on to things because we're fearful. We want, if I don't have this, then how can I ever have peace? For you who are bitter and you don't want to forgive. How can you look at Jesus who brought you near by his own blood when you were a smelly, dirty, ugly, nasty person and then not do the same to that smelly, ugly, nasty person who acted all of those ways towards you, right? There's an inconsistency here. So this is what we mean by a gospel-centered life. Uh, uh, The gospel is what Jesus has done. And the gospel-centered life says, in response, I'm going to imitate you. I'm going to, to do as Jesus has done. And God gets glory in that. In verse 14, it says, he's broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility. So what is this dividing wall? Let's look in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So this dividing wall is this law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This is the ceremonial law. This is all the the stuff you read in Leviticus, in Numbers, the holiness code, the washings, the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats. And for someone who doesn't know Jesus, for the heart that doesn't have faith, they read that and they say, hmm, archaic, patriarchal culture that just sacrifices animals thinking that it does something. That's ignorance. Christ is what this all pointed to, right? The washings, the cleansing. We have baptism, right? The circumcision, circumcise your heart. It's the new birth. The blood of bulls and goats. Well, the blood of Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross, the soldiers thought that they were killing this Jewish Messiah. What they didn't realize was they were also, in a roundabout way, killing their hostility. Because it says here that Through his body on the cross, he killed the hostility. So when Jesus is dying, hostility is dying. 
the Jew and Gentile divide is being broken, right? This is a wall. Why does anyone break down a wall to bring together that which was separate? Remember when Jesus cries out and the veil is torn? What's happening? The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, God and sinner, is being abolished. It's being ripped. So now, no longer do you have to go to a temple. You go to Jesus. We worship in Jesus. We worship on the Lord's day, right? On the day that Jesus has arisen. So, check this out. This is in the wisdom of God, how he lays man low when he gets really proud of himself. So, if you're a Jew... You have circumcision, you have the commandments, you have the law. And contrary to many evangelicals, the law was not a bad thing. The law was something you boasted about. Read Psalm 119. I delight in your law, O Lord. This was what separated the Jews from the nations. They had Yahweh with them. They had a pillar. And so um, what God does is he says this to the Jews. He says, you cannot be... In this covenant with me, you cannot be in Christ unless you're in here with all of those Gentile nations. Okay, so think about that for a second. God is making out of two, one. Jew and Gentile, one. So, I want you to think about this, um, and don't push this illustration all the way, but imagine we're in a big, massive elevator right now, okay? We're in an elevator. You know, elevators are very awkward, right? You're like, do I say anything? There's always that person that's like super talkative, that's like, you know, starts talking to you like you've been friends your whole life. And you're like, I don't know you. So imagine we're in this elevator called Jesus, okay? And we're going up to the Father, okay? Are you guys cool doing the next, uh, I have probably, if the Lord wills, 50 years, let's say. Are you guys cool being in this elevator together for the next 50 years? Look around. These are your people. Are you guys cool with that? So this is kind of what God God is, is saying to the Jews, right? He's saying, look, you're in the covenant. You have, you're not apart from God and without him in the world. But I want... To save the, save the world. I, I purchased the nations. I want the gospel to go to everyone. And that means that they're going to be brought in to where you already are. They're brought in by faith. And so, as we look around, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, every, everything in between. Are we cool with this? Right? Are we cool being in this elevator? Or are we kind of like, dang, I wish that person would get off on the third floor? Take of the stairs. So if we're going to be in this elevator called Jesus in the covenant with God, if we're going to come to table and eat together, fellowship, if we're going to go to house party and talk about our day, our week, and have um, a meal, we need to learn how to deal with conflict and to deal with it like we believe the gospel. To, be, to deal with it like Jesus is our peace and there isn't peace apart from him. So um, I want to look at kind of two ways that people generally respond to conflict. And I want you to kind of, uh, I know you're going to read these and probably think, that sounds like that person. But I want you to do an internal inventory for yourself, okay? It's much easier to see out there, but I want you to, to think about yourself. So there's these two kind of categories. And this comes from uh, the Gospel-Centered Life book. Um, there's attackers and then there's avoiders. And so I'm going to read, read up, they're going to pop up on the screen what attackers tend to be. So you're in conflict with someone, and this is kind of what an attacker does. Uh, you, deal with, uh, you deal with frustration, you deal with conflict by venting it, okay? You argue, you argue your case passionately. You ask questions like, how do you know? And can you prove that? You want to fight until the fight is over. You cross-examine like a lawyer in order to, uh, let's get to the heart of the conflict, honey, you know. Uh, Winning the argument is more important than loving the opponent. 
You turn the argument to focus on the other person, even if it began with you as the focal point. You guys, you guys feeling like maybe this has happened to you at some point with someone? Or maybe you are a avoider or withdrawer. You know, you, you, you are scared of it. So, whereas the attacker places a high value on justice, it matters greatly who is right, right? Who's right? That's all that matters. An avoider often find them, finds themselves on the defensive, and when pressed into an argument, they respond in sullen silence or apathetic passivity. Okay, so this is when you come up, talk to your friend, and you say, hey, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And they have no answer. And they just sit there. And they're silent. And you're like, I have a lot, long list of arguments for you. And they're like, they leave. Right? Let's, let's do this another time. So these people tend to deal with anger or frustration by suppressing it. You have opinions, but keep them to yourself in order to keep the peace. You ask questions like, do we have to talk about this now? And does it, does it matter? So you'd rather avoid, avoid a fight than win one. You sometimes physically leave an argument in order to get some space. It's crazy. You can, uh, I think sometimes when I, I'm the one who's, who I think I'm right, I, I tend to be the attacker. And when I know I'm wrong, I, I try to withdraw and avoid, right? It's kind of what we do. It's the natural knee-jerk response. So, what would a gospel-centered, right, let's use the phrase, what would be a gospel-centered approach to conflict when you're in that tiff? I want you to, to say, so some of you might be hearing this sermon on conflict and being like, I'm good with everybody. Anybody mad at me? I know a few people who might, you know, owe me some apologies, but I definitely don't owe anybody an apology. Think about how minute and how sensitive some people are, right? Um, I, I hurt people all the time, and I don't even know it. I only find out like a day later, right? And so this is, this is a way that Jesus would have us do it. It says in 1 John 4, 20 to 21, I think it's up there. It says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, <laughs> right? You dirty liar. For he who does not love his brother... Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we can measure your love for God by whether your brother thinks so or not. Do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? Do you love your, your spouse, your children, your friends? <sighs> Jesus says there's no possible way for you to be doing your devotions, loving Jesus, singing the worship songs, and you to not love these other people in the elevator with you. Okay? So let's look. Um, if I said earlier that the matter of this is all at the heart, at the root, um, let's look at kind of the heart foundation. Can you guys see this? Cool. Um, Let's walk through these. So for, for the attacker, the aggressor, the heart foundation tends to be self-righteousness, right? High emphasis on justice. And so these are the people that they're right in their own eyes. That's the heart foundation. And what their power source is, most definitely sin, flesh, but it tends to be pride, right? Why, why is it so hard for us to say, I was wrong, I'm wrong, because of pride. I don't like being wrong. You don't like being wrong because it's humbling. So we want to be right to argue or subdue. And we feel that when we do that, justice has been done. Life is safe. And the result tends to be, well, people get hurt. People stop wanting to hang out with you, right? Why would we want to hang out with that person? They're always trying to stir something up. Um, for the avoider or for the one who withdraws, a lot of the time stems from this insecurity, right? 
I don't know how to argue. They're way better at arguing than me. I, I, don't, I don't even know. And a lot of this is driven by fear. So you want to avoid conflict. You want to just say what, what you want. You know, kind of, hey, it's all good. It's all good. No, really, it's all good. Just, okay? Right? This is, I, I don't want to talk about this. Let's just do this another time. I need to cool down. And then you never have that conversation. And what happens? Little seeds of bitterness get planted. And a lot of time that blows up into this massive tree that takes some work to dig out. This tends to be bitterness and separation that happens. So if you're experiencing, I mean, you can look at these and say, okay, if I'm bitter at this person, why? And kind of walk through it. Think about, let's apply the gospel to these heart situations, right? So um, what we want, we, we know at the bottom root of our heart, we, we just want to be loved and we want to be known. We want to be able to be in the garden again, naked and unashamed, okay? And so for the self-righteous person, let's, how do we apply the gospel to this? Well, it's okay, You don't have to be self-righteous because your righteousness is where? It's in Jesus. For for the person who's insecure, where does your security come come from? As the catechism says, you know, what is uh, your only uh, comfort in, in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, right? You are not yours. Your identity is in Jesus. So you actually have security. And what this does, it allows you to fight as they say, to fight fair. So what this looks like is a lot of humility, right? So everything you see over here, just do the opposite, okay? Uh, Repentance and forgiveness, okay? These are all things that Jesus has done, right? he's, He's forgiven you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. You actually can be all right winning the person and losing the argument. Because I have my brother back. I have my sister back. I have my friend back. And you're saying, I'm all right just eating this one, you know? I'm I'm okay just saying, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm wrong. It's amazing what humility does to the other person's disposition. If you look around... You'll notice that we're a very uh, diverse church, right? More so than others. Not just a diversity um, ethnically, but a diversity in background, right? Social status, education. We have, we're going to have rich and we're going to have poor. We're going to have Jay wearing a hat on stage and uh, me not ever wearing a hat on stage. <laughs> But all of us wearing free Duval shirts after, after this. Um, we're going to need to learn to deal with conflict with one another, right? Because people are messy. The church is messy. This darn elevator is super awkward and very slow, right? There are days when we come into the office and we're like, Jesus, come back, please. Like now. Like yesterday. Anything other than going to this meeting, right? So we're, we're going to need to learn how to talk about things with one another. So some people are attackers. Some people are withdrawers. If we have a culture of grace, of forbearance with one another, where we say, I love God and I love my brother, what does that free us to do? It frees us to be honest. So some people need to speak up. They're withdrawing. And some people need to shut up. Or as the Bible says, slow to speak and quick to listen. Um, Because you're talking too much. I'm sorry. When the Jews and the Gentiles fellowship together, they adorned the gospel. They adorned it. So what does that mean? When we adorn a doctrine, we show that it's beautiful. I already said the gospel, this good news, this grace is objectively beautiful. And we do it a disservice When we act all ugly, right? So Jews and Gentiles coming to table and eating with one another absolutely blew the categories for people that they needed to to call these people a new name. 
That's where we get Christian from, right? They had to call them Christians. They showed the world that peace and that unity is only possible when Jesus kills the hostility. No amount of political reform or education reform or any other kind of reform. Apart from Jesus, there is no lasting peace. There's no way we can have it here. The Jews had the covenant, they had all the promises, and yet many of them, because they were proud, they were cut out of the olive branch. This is Romans 11. And then the Gentiles were grafted in, and then God warned them, hey, don't get proud. If I cut off these natural branches, you who are a wild olive shoot who have been grafted in, I will cut you off if you become proud. So in the church, in the community of God, in the covenant... There is no place for proud, self-righteous, self-reliance on your own works. So what are we doing when we take jabs at one another in the hallways of our lives and underneath our homes? When we don't say what's actually going on when we're at house party or talking to people, right? Does that look like love? What are we doing when we are afraid that the majority opinion is going to look down on me, the minority, because I see the world through a different lens? Does that look like security in the gospel? Does that look like courage? When a man and a woman marry, they make vows. And when that first fight comes, what a really unhealthy approach would be is you start throwing around the D word, taking off the ring, slamming the door, driving, going for a drive at the first sign of trouble. This leads to fear, to insecurity, to aggression, to a lack of intimacy. So when two two people face conflict and they are secure in their covenant identity, right? So A man and a woman are covenanted in marriage. Um, When we are in covenant with one another in Christ, there's no fear of being kicked out of the family. You're you're named with the name that Jesus gives you. Son and daughter. You can't nullify that. If you have faith in Christ and are a Christian, you're in our family. This is a family. We can actually have conflict and fight with one another, knowing that our status as brother and sister, as son and daughter of Jesus, is way up there with Jesus, right? Where's your righteousness? Is it down here? Can the devil get to it? Can you get to it? Can you nullify the righteousness of God? If Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and your righteousness is with him, dude, you're secure. You're good. So... Why we still got conflict here? When you're in the family, we can talk about how that made you feel when they said that or did this. And we can do this knowing that no matter what happens, no matter how that person reacts, we're still in covenant. So keep the ring on, so to speak. A ring symbolizes the vows you made to your spouse, so be faithful to them. Baptism symbolizes the vows you and God made at your baptism, so be faithful to them. When you are baptized into Christ, you're baptized into this elevator, let us say. You're baptized into the, into the church. And you are in an elevator with a bunch of people who are just as screwed up as you are. So what's the point What's the point of us dealing with this conflict? What's the point of us coming to table together? The answer is in verse 17 and 18. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The goal of this is, this is not an elevator to nowhere. It's an elevator to the Father. God is beckoning his children to stop squabbling, to look up, and in one spirit to dwell in unity as Jesus brings us to the Father. So Jesus is the door, he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, and he brings us to God the Father. I'll never forget uh, the moments in my life when I have felt the most loved, 
absolutely the most loved was when I actually um, disobeyed my father. And um, basically, I already had disobeyed him doing something that he told me not to do. And then I cussed him out. I said some things that I cannot repeat to him. To his face, he asked me, Aaron, what did you say to me? And then even more proudly, I I recited the exact uh, profanities to his face again. Lord, have mercy. And it did not go well for me after that. What I felt was like the most fear I've ever felt in my life. The fear of God was put into me. For the next, like, two days, I was so nervous. Crap. My dad's coming home. Need to find another room. I'm, like, running away from him. And, and my, my dad, a Christian man, tried to do his best to raise me up. And, but he didn't talk to me. We didn't talk for, like, two days. I've never felt more alienated in my life. But I remember one day he came home. And his countenance had changed. He said, Aaron, come here. And we talked. And he said, I love you. And I forgive you. And he told me that he was sorry that things were tense around the house for making me alienated. And I, I just dissolved. I'm sorry. I should have never said those things to you. And, and I hugged my dad, and he hugged me. And there's something about seeing your dad cry that changes you. Never felt more loved in my life. Cathartic. That release. I'm back home. You guys, when we were exiled from the garden, we experienced alienation We had no home because we had no father. And what God has done in reconciling us to himself is saying, I have a son who obeyed and you can be in him. His name is Jesus. And through him, you can come back to the father. So the gospel, grace, salvation is a return to Eden. It's a return home. To the Father. In Revelation, there is a great wedding feast, the marriage of Jesus and the church. At this wedding, there are Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, Asians, Hispanics, everyone else. There are no whispers in the back about the bride's shoddy past. That dress should have been off white. None of the sidelong glances at this wedding. No jealousy. <laughs> No awkward elephants in the room. No unresolved tensions. Only perfect unity, harmony, and glad celebration to God. You guys, this is what we will attain in the resurrection. When this elevator goes to the top, or as Jesus comes back, to use a more biblical illustration, it's how it's going to be. So let's practice this now. Practice unity this morning. So as we come to table to take communion, we are proclaiming the death of the Lord until he comes. This bread represents his body, his flesh, in which that dividing wall of hostility was torn down. The juice represents his blood, blood that brought us near and gave peace to us who were far off. We partake from the same body, the same blood, and we become liars if we do so while at conflict with our kin. So if you need to confess your sins to someone and ask forgiveness, I want you to take the time to do that before you come to table. For the scripture says, whoever therefore eats the body or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Uh, Communion is only for Christians. And if today you'd like to become a Christian, come partake of Christ, put your faith in him and be reconciled. Be no longer alienated. Invite the band up. Let's pray. Father, God, I just confess to you 
on behalf of the people here in this room and on behalf of our city and our nation that we have not glorified you. We have not adorned your gospel. We have not walked consistent with this peace that you have brought. But we look forward to that wedding feast. We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you clothe us in white, when you call us who were whores brides, beautiful and spotless. God, I ask that you would melt off that hardness of heart in the sun of grace, the light of the gospel. God, for those who are hurt, who have been hurt, and that person is no longer here or not in this room to be reconciled to, that you would draw near to them. You'd be close, that you would be our peace and our comfort. God, I I pray for this church. I pray for Pastor Matt. I pray for the leaders, that we would walk in fellowship with the Spirit, that we would walk in a healthy manner that is consistent with this gospel we speak of, that we would love you, that we would adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.